But speaking of Christmas concerts, uh, on uh, we're going to be going through First and Second Peter today. But did you know that 200 years ago this year, uh, at this little church here, it's called the Church of Saint Nicholas in Salzburg, Austria, there was a lowly assistant pastor a lowly assistant pastor named Joseph Moore, and he learned, sadly, that the church organ was broken and would not be available for the Christmas Eve service that night. And uh, there's Joseph Moore there on the left. Having been awestruck the, the night before by the Christmas story from Matthew and Luke, Moore sat down and he composed a few verses and took it to the church organist, the guy on the right, Franz uh, Gruber. The two had no idea that in their search for something just to fill in the gap that night, since the organ was broken, that they would be writing one of the most beloved and enduring Christmas carols that has ever been written, and that is the carol Silent Night. And these two learned something that night that we would do well to learn from First and Second Peter today, and that's this reality, is that God delights, this is what we're going to see in First and Second Peter, and this is what uh, Joseph Moore and Franz Gruber learned that night 200 years ago, that God delights and bringing beauty out of the brokenness of those who fix their eyes on Jesus. Now, every part of that sentence is important, okay? First of all, it might surprise you that God delights in doing anything, but God is a God of immense joy. That's actually what he's inviting us into when he not just invites us to celebrate Christmas, but invites us into a relationship with him. Joy, it should be the, the, the trademark of Christianity in every season of life. But God delights in bringing beauty because beauty comes from God. But if we're honest about the situation that we're in, uh, we're in a broken situation. So can God really do that? Absolutely he can. And he delights in doing that with those who this, you can't do without this last part of the, of the statement, with those who fix their eyes on Jesus. And I pray, oh, I pray, First Baptist Abbeville, that you will, you will hear this and heed this today, that God delights in bringing beauty out of the brokenness of those who fix their eyes on Jesus. And so, uh, as, we, as we come nearer and nearer to the end of completing our journey through the Bible, these truths that we've seen are meant to fuel our faithfulness in this day and age. God's story, my friends, is still being written each day of your life as you walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus so that He can bring beauty out of our brokenness as well. And so let's jump into First and Second Peter today and see how, uh, how I've come up with this statement that I think typifies both of these letters so well. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Peter. Peter was one of the 12, original 12 apostles and part of that inner circle of three. Peter, James, and John were uh, kind of the closest disciples of Jesus Christ with him in some very critical times, like the, being on the mountain of transfiguration. But after Jesus' ascension, Peter became uh, one of the chief shepherds and pastors of the church. And not only was he that, but he was an apostle or missionary who went out all throughout, um, all throughout North Africa and all throughout Egypt, I mean, uh, uh, all throughout uh, Asia Minor and into Western Europe as well, preaching the gospel. And we don't know much about Peter's uh, life and ministry because Luke's narrative shifts uh, right in the middle when Luke has been tracking with Peter and the early church. All of a sudden, Luke starts tagging along with Paul, and the rest of the book of Acts is really about Paul. And so we don't really know what all Peter did except for times that he's mentioned, but we do know that he remained faithful to the end, and he preached the gospel of Jesus to Jews and Gentiles both. 
And most commentators believe that while he was writing these two letters uh, around the same time, he was in prison in Rome about 10 years before his death. Nero, which you've heard of, uh, is emperor at that time, and Christian persecution is is at an all-time high. And Peter recognizes, much like Paul when he was doing 2 Timothy, Peter recognizes that he's going to die soon. And so he writes these two letters for very distinct purposes, and his goal is that they would uh, distill his teaching and encourage a number of churches as they are circulated from church to church to church. And we know that within 10 years, uh, Peter was actually crucified in Rome. And many of you may not know, but he was actually crucified upside down. You say, well, why was he crucified upside down? Because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. And so he said, just flip me upside down and I'll be crucified, but, but I'm not worthy to die the same kind of death in the same manner as my Savior. And so this shows us Peter's faithfulness till the end. But Peter, about 10 years before this event, he experiences persecution himself, and he sees all of his brothers and sisters being persecuted and suffering as well. And so Peter writes the letter of 1 Peter that we, that we know as 1 Peter. It wasn't his first and only letter, but uh, since it's his first letter in the New Testament, we call it 1 Peter. He writes this letter as an encouragement to those who are suffering for Christ, much like James wrote two decades earlier. And then, much, probably around the same time, he writes another letter that we call 2 Peter, because just like Paul, he saw the, the false teaching of false teachers come and ravage the church and all of these new believers. And so he was passionate about, about helping these new Christians understand the truth and help them understand specific false teachings and accusations that were being made against the gospel. And so that's why we have these two letters of First and Second Peter. And so before we jump into those, though, I want to tell you a little bit of a story, a true story, because this guy's going to be playing today. His name is Kirk Cousins. He is the current quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings. And Kirk Cousins, uh, I read a story about him that, that blessed and intrigued me this week. I think you'll find it interesting as well. So Kirk Cousins has an interesting sculpture outside of his house. Here's a picture of it. It's just a little tube with all of these uh, stones in it. And there's a specific number of stones that are in it, actually. It's 720 stones. So Kirk Cousins, uh, he's a believer, and he actually, uh, he, he says, well, I'm going to live to be 90. Don't ask me how he knows that. Maybe he's just being hopeful, right? But he has one stone per month of his life in this jar. And he has a little rock garden out there, right? And he goes, and every month he'll pick up a stone and he'll put it in his pocket. And he'll walk around with that stone for the entire month. And then when he gets done with that month and it's about to turn into another month, he'll take that stone and he'll put it in that jar. And obviously, over the years, it's grown bigger and bigger and and fuller and fuller and fuller. You see, Cousins got this idea after hearing a Bible teacher preach on Psalm 90, verse 14, where the psalmist prays, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of what? Anybody? Wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. So Cousins takes a rock, puts it in his pocket, goes throughout that month, and every time he hits that rock, he says it's a reminder to him that he won't ever get this day back. And that 
Lord willing, if he has another day tomorrow, that it's a day filled with opportunities. But those opportunities won't last either. It's a reminder of the, of the certainty that life is fleeting and fading. But it's also a reminder of the certainty that he will die one day. And for many people, that might seem, uh, that might seem morbid. But for Kirk Cousins, it helps, him, it helps remind him of that which he is truly certain. Now I ask you, what are you certain about today as you sit here at church this morning? What are you absolutely sure about? You see, Peter, as he's writing to us, is absolutely certain about a few things in his life. We know that he was a man that had an immense trial of faith when Jesus was arrested and crucified, don't we? And we, we remember hearing the story about him being restored there on that beach that, uh, that day, in those days after Jesus was raised from the dead. And as Peter was restored to ministry, as he was restored to, uh, to the fold, so to speak, Peter became somebody of incredible conviction, somebody that would go all over the world and preach the gospel. That's just what he did. And what we're going to see today is a, is a truth that we've been familiar with for a long time, is that, is, that, uh, is that you don't always live what you profess, but you always live what you believe. You don't always live what you profess, but you always, inevitably, live what you believe. And so Peter says, I believe these things that I'm, I'm about to tell you, church, with absolute certainty, and I want you to be certain about them too. And it's my prayer today is that when you leave here, that you would be certain of these things that Peter says in First and Second Peter. So let's jump in and see what we need to be certain about. The entirety of First Peter reminds us that we need to be certain that we will suffer. We need to be certain that we will suffer in this world. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so from the outset, from the very beginning of 1 Peter, Peter wants us to get comfortable with this paradox of the Christian life. And he actually praises God for it. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith and salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a mouthful of words, but here's the paradox that, Paul, I mean, that Peter wants us to understand. It's that this persecution and suffering that you're experiencing in this life, hear me, it's a gift from God. Just let that sink in about how counterintuitive that is to the American way of, of, of American thought process. That the suffering and persecution that you would experience in the path of obedience in this life is a gift from God. Peter wants us to be comfortable with that paradox because he wants us to understand that it refines our priorities, this suffering and persecution. It heightens our spiritual senses so that it becomes easier for us to enter into the presence of the Lord to find hope. 
And here's the problem, though, is that we won't find purpose in our suffering if you're not soaking in the story of God's redemptive plan. In fact, look at chapter 2. We're all familiar. We've done this all throughout the New Testament. We've seen these little, uh, these verses that we memorize or that we have written on, uh, you know, Christian paraphernalia all throughout our house, maybe blankets or, or wall plaques or something like that. We see these verses, and yet we have maybe have never really studied the context of them. But a few weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 was my, was my memory verse. It was our memory verse. And, and that, 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 that verse clearly says, You are a chosen race, a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But why is that in chapter 2? It's in chapter 2 because what Peter is doing is Peter is using Old Testament language about God's love for his covenant people, Israel. And he's saying, listen, you who read this letter, you Christians who read this letter, your suffering is, is in this moment. But your suffering and your persecution are part of a much bigger story. He uses language from the exiles, from where Israel was was delivered from Egypt, and they wandered in the wilderness. And what God told them in that moment, why would Peter do this? What hope does this have? This is the same thing that we face every single Sunday as we come and we gather on the Bible. What could a book written all these thousands of years ago, how could that be relevant to my life? Well, Peter shows us a perfect example of it right here. Do you want to know why the Bible is relevant for your life? Is because your life is not primarily about you. And what God is doing in this world is much more important. It's much bigger than you could ever imagine. And so if you're going to find hope, you need to find it by recognizing and submitting and believing the reality that your story is, a, is, a, is just part of a much bigger story. And that in that story, the good news is, is that God wins. God, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? That God wins, that Christ has conquered that that little baby in a manger grew up to be a man of God who was slaughtered as an innocent man. He was murdered. He was executed, but God vindicated him. That's what his whole book of 1 Peter is about. That's what he's about to get into in chapters 3, 4, and 5 is that God vindicated him in his suffering to show him that it was worth it. And if God did that for Jesus and you've been united with him in baptism like we celebrated this this morning, then guess what? God's going to do that for you as well. So endure, church. Have hope. Endure this suffering. Endure this persecution because your life is a part of a glorious story. It's not about just me and what... This is the, this is the bane of social media in our day. i got to share with everybody what's going on in my life because it's the most important thing. No, it's not. Sorry. It's really not. That's why we've devoted this entire year to understanding that we're living in His story. And that's the same vein that Peter comes to us in, that we are this people, and God is not done with us. And so he spends the next three chapters, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, applying this to different situations. Because as they fix their eyes, as the church fixes their eyes on what God has done, they will gain hope about what God is doing. Now, now, just let that sink in for a second. As they fix their eyes on what God has done, 
and how Christ suffered and how, how God has delivered his people and what God is doing, as they fix their eyes on that, then they will gain hope about what God is doing. You've, maybe you've been following this story about this young missionary that was, that was killed off the coast of India just a couple of weeks ago. John Allen Chow was in his 20s. He was actually from Alabama at one point in his life. And he was taking the gospel to the North Sentinel Islands off the coast of India. And his public suffering and death have caused us to ask some really uh, interesting questions about this thing that many people call radical Christian faith. He knew he was going to die, and yet he still went. I mean, even today, you think about what happened when Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Roger Udarian and Ed McCauley and, and all these guys that were, that were speared to death by the Alka Indians in the 50s. On, on Life Magazine, on the, the cover of Life Magazine, when they were killed, the, the cover said, Take the gospel to all nations. A national secular magazine. I was reading an article about John Allen Chow this week. And the people in the comment section were echoing the person in the article, and they were calling him a religious predator. How much has our culture changed? Immensely. And this kind of radical Christianity looks crazy in the eyes of the world, and even in the eyes of many Christians as well. But I hate to tell the people who call this radical Christianity, John Allen Child wasn't a radical Christian. John Allen Child was a biblical Christian. John Allen Chow was a, a, a Christian who recognized the purpose for his life. And even if it meant his death in his mid-20s, he knew that his story was part of a much larger story. So what kind of hope do you have when you soak yourself in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and place your story in the context of a much larger story, you have the hope that can face down the spears of people who hate you for the glory of King Jesus because he's worthy of their praise. And if nobody takes the gospel to them, then they'll die and go to hell. But Jesus is worthy of their worship. And so let me go and proclaim the kingdom among them. Maybe for some of you in this room, that seems foolish. But remember the words of Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Don't mourn for John Allen Chow. He's no fool. Instead, in many cases, we are. Because we put our treasure in that which is on this earth. How would we think that we wouldn't be persecuted like John Allen Chow and like Peter and Paul and even Jesus himself? It's not that they were radical. It's really just that, in many cases, we as the American church are complacent. You see, no servant is greater than his master, and if they persecuted Jesus, then they will eventually persecute us. So let me ask you a very critical question. How do you prepare your family, your children, your grandchildren, yourself, your spouse, for the persecution that is most assuredly coming upon Americans as our culture gets even more and more radically anti-Christian? How will you prepare yourself? Will, will you prepare yourself to play the victim? I hope not. I hope that you will arm yourselves with the habits of gospel meditation and devotion so that when your child is called a name because they're actually seeking to follow the will of God for their lives, when you're slandered or mistreated or betrayed, maybe you lose a job because you're following God, 
I pray that God's love and His works through Jesus on your behalf will show you the path to walk away from self-pity and away from victimization into hope. And so in chapters 3 through 5, Paul, I mean Peter concludes this first letter by showing us that we can find hope in the midst of certain persecution and suffering in this world as we fix our eyes on the story of Jesus. And it's in that context that he talks about Noah in, uh, in uh, chapter 3. He, and he talks about uh, these different things go into the chapter 4, verse 19. Look at 4, verse 19. If you, if you don't mind underlining in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline chapter 4, verse 19 of 1 Peter. Chapter 4, of verse 19. Because this shows us that when suffering comes, that when we soak ourselves in the truth of Christ's sufferings, that we will have the strength to continue walking in doing good in those moments, that we won't respond in wrath and revenge. Just a personal testimony, this was the verse that the Lord put in my path the morning that we heard about my mother-in-law several years ago, about her having cancer. There are many, many occasions in this life when we suffer according to the will of God. We don't like that. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But it's not outside of the power and will of God. That when we suffer according to God's will, that we just need, need to keep on entrusting ourselves to Him and walking forward in goodness and righteousness. So Christian, what will you be certain of? I hope that after hearing First Peter, you'll be certain that you will suffer, but that you'll be certain that you'll be vindicated just as Christ was. But Peter has more for us to be certain of, and that's where we turn to the letter of 2 Peter. This one's a little bit shorter. But 2 Peter, uh, Peter writes to tell us, be certain that Christ is coming again. Be certain that he's coming back. You see, as we studied the writings of Paul, we've seen that in many of his letters, he's addressed the, the reality of these false teachers trying to ravage the church. You see, this is a generational reality. We still have false teachers among us in, our, in the American church, on TVs, on, on the TV channels, even the ones that are devoted to, uh, to supposed gospel preaching. There are false teachers everywhere. Uh, this, and this is, uh, this is something that we must be ready to face as well. And that's why Peter writes the letter of Second Peter, to address these objections and accusations that the false teachers were making there in the churches that Peter had served. And so Peter makes, he, he addresses these two distinct truths in the whole of the letter. First of all, truth number one, is that true faith in Christ, it grows continually to look more and more like Jesus. Now, this seems like one of the, one of the simplest things that, that I could convey to you, yet I feel like it's the most overlooked in the Christian life. Do you recognize that there's never a point in your Christian life at which you should stop looking more like Jesus, at which you should stop growing? And Peter wants us to understand and be certain about how this process plays itself out in there in, in, in a person's life. And so 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where's our focus? What we, should we be focusing on, Peter, if we are going to continue to grow in this life? Look at verse 3. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So 
Once again, my job, Bible teacher, to try to take that really complex sentence that we could preach about four or five messages on and just kind of encapsulate it into something simple that you can take, take home with you. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying if you want to look more like Jesus, then consume the promises of God. Now, last week, you know, I wasn't here because God ordained that I would have a stomach virus uh, on Saturday night at about 11 p.m. First time in, 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 you know, at least a decade and a half of ministry that I've, I've had to call somebody on Saturday night and say, can't make it, you got to preach for me, All right? Uh, and so this is, a, this is a very simplistic illustration because I'm a simple guy. So uh, needless to say, I had consumed many calories on Thanksgiving, right? It was a wonderful feast. Uh, my, my wife's family knows how to, how to do it up. I mean, just everything you could have ever imagined that I could ever want. And, uh, and as I had consumed uh, all of those calories on Thanksgiving, I began to embody that which I had consumed, not a turkey, uh, but just a butterball. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> I mean, really, and all of us are in that, in that predicament, right? Well, very interestingly, uh, that stomach virus absolutely robbed me of all the nourishment that I gained over Thanksgiving. And sadly, this is the way that many people live their Christian life. They expect to fill themselves with that which really does their body no good. And then when suffering comes, it robs them of it all because it was never worthwhile in the first place. You see, if you fill your mind and your heart with the very great and precious promises of God, like we talked about in 1 Peter, then Peter says you will become more and more partakers of the divine nature. And so if you want to look more and more like Jesus, what are you filling your mind with? That's what he's saying. What are you meditating upon? What are you celebrating in your life? What are you really, really focusing on and being diligent to know and understand? Peter says that's why God gave us his promises. And true Christianity requires a lifelong response to these mercies that the Bible describes for us. And so Peter says, focus your eyes on the promises of God, and that's going to produce this. This faith, in verse 5, this virtue, this knowledge, this self-control, this steadfastness, this godliness, this brotherly affection, and this love. Do you want to be that kind of Christian who bears fruit, who grows, who, who has these virtues in their life so that when the people around you need them, that just like fruit in an orchard, that they can come and just pluck them off and taste and see that God is good in your life? Do you want that kind of life? Then trace it back. Fill your mind with the promises of God. Fill your home with the promises of God. Fill your family conversations with the promises of God. And you will become partakers of the divine nature. You will become and look more and more and more like Jesus as you follow this pattern for spiritual growth, which should never stop in the Christian life. Because, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective. You will be a powerful saint of God if you will follow God's pattern for discipleship. But if you don't, you will be ineffective. Those are Peter's words. And then the charge in verse 10 is, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. And people just, oh, election. Oh, there's that word again. We're very uncomfortable with that word, election. But you know all it's saying is? Make sure that your life lines up with what you just heard. Because if it doesn't, then you may not be a believer. 
That's what that phrase means. If you, if you can't look at your life and see an increasing fruitfulness and, tr- and a trust in the promises of God, then either A, you've never tried that path of discipleship, which is biblical discipleship, or B, then you don't have that source of spiritual life in you. Oh, that's a scary thing to think about. But Peter wants us to be certain about it, and so that's why he explains it there. And so that's the truth that he wants us to be certain about, first of all, because Jesus is coming back. Don't be ineffective. But secondly, chapters 2 and 3, because Jesus is coming back, you need to recognize these false teachers for what they really are. First of all, they say that Peter and the apostles had just made up all of these things, and Peter responds in verse 21 and says, "Uh, no, I didn't. This is the Spirit of God working through me, working through my words. There's power in the gospel, and therefore, I'm not making it up. Let it stand on its own merits. But secondly, in chapter 2, chapter 2 talks about these false teachers. They were engaging in sexual immorality. They were exploiting people so that they could get more and more and more money and living these lavish lifestyles. And so they were doing that. And Peter reminds them in chapter 2, he reminds them that, don't worry, these false teachers will get what's coming to them. And he uses all of these Old Testament stories about Sodom and Gomorrah and about the, uh, the sons of God in Genesis 6, the flood in Genesis 6 through 8, just to simply say that these things will happen because God doesn't forget. He doesn't forget unrepentant sin. He doesn't forget the false teachers and their false teaching. And the church needs to know these false teachers by the fruits of their lifestyle. But finally, and lastly, in in chapter 3, a chapter we're very familiar with, these false prophets were saying, look at all the time that's passed by since Jesus came and he promised his return. Wake up. He's not coming back. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some would consider slowness. But he is patient with you. Because he wants all people to come to repentance and to a knowledge of the truth. That's Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, a little Ryan paraphrase for you. Do you recognize that the reason that Jesus has tarried so long from coming back is because he wants more and more people to be in the family of God? Christ is coming again. You can count that. And we will all stand in judgment on that day about how effective we have been at using the resources and walking with Him. And on that day, all the works and the hearts of the people will be exposed. And so, Christian, today, Peter will leave us with a question. What are you certain of? Be certain that you will suffer. Be certain that you will suffer, but know where to find hope. Be certain of true Christianity, because false teachers will always try to convince you of otherwise. Be certain that just as Christ came for the first time, that He is coming again. Until then, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? Are you running around in despair because your proverbial organ is broken and you think that the quote-unquote Christmas Eve service is ruined because of that organ being broken? Let me tell you, if you would meditate on the gospel just like Joseph Moore and Franz Gruber, then God would bring beauty out of your brokenness. Or like Kirk Cousins, maybe you're not recognizing that one day you'll stand before him. And you're not numbering your days so that you would gain a heart of wisdom. But I would tell you today that you will stand before God one day 
And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you would find unique ways to keep the truths of God before you and soak in those truths, you will find yourself transformed. You will find yourself grounded in reality. And you would find yourself anchored in the midst of suffering and confusion and the brokenness that typifies this world. And God will do through you what He wants to do through you, and that's to make you an ambassador of hope in the midst of this lost and broken world. And so I want to ask you today, are you this kind of disciple that Peter is talking about? Are you certain of these things? Many of you have experienced suffering in here, and you could, you could, you could stand here and you could preach your own message about where to find hope. That's why I love our story as First Baptist Church, that God has brought us together so that we can be a people who are set apart for that. But what's your story? What are you certain of? What are you celebrating? How are you living? Are you living in light of judgment? Because judgment will come. And so let us meditate upon these great and precious promises as a daily focus so that we can grow to look more and more like Jesus, so that we can be effective in advancing the kingdom of God. That is my prayer for us today. And so as we come to this time of invitation, I would, I would invite you that, like Aubrey Murphy did just a few uh, weeks ago, if you need to come and you need to tell your church family that you've made a decision to trust in Jesus or that you've made a decision to follow Jesus in a way that, that you need accountability on, then, then now's the time for you to do that. And I'll be down here in the front to receive you. And I pray that God would find us faithful to say yes to him in this moment. Let's pray together.